The numbers continue to soar and get more alarming by the day. Florida officials on Friday reported 8,942 new coronavirus infections in the state, a single-day record that eclipsed by more than 3,000 the previous record set only two days before. In Texas, officials reported nearly 6,000 new cases, forcing Governor Greg Abbott to issue an executive order reinstating restrictions on bars, restaurants, and certain types of outdoor recreation. It's all part of a disturbing nationwide spike that has spooked public health officials and thrown a major monkey wrench into President Trump's hopes of reviving the country's economy, not to mention his fading re-election chances. We'll dig into the numbers and try to figure out what's going on with Yahoo News medical contributor and former Obama administration official Dr. Kavita Patel. And we'll get some new poll numbers from Yahoo News political correspondent Andrew Romano on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So while these numbers continue to go up in ways that I think it's fair to say nobody was anticipating, we're getting the reassurances from the White House that all is okay. Here's President Trump on his favorite platform, Twitter, just earlier today. Coronavirus deaths are way down. Mortality rate is one of the lowest in the world. Our economy is roaring back and will not be shut down. Embers or flare-ups will be put out as necessary, exclamation point. This is not a time for a lot of exclamation points. Someone needs to tell the president that. Uh, Look, the coronavirus task force had its first briefing in two months, and it was like Mike Pence was taking a victory lap talking about the remarkable progress that we've made returning the nation to normalcy. You know, and then meanwhile, you have Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci up there, both wearing masks, painting a much darker picture of what's going on. I mean, it was a tale of two briefings, and it's kind of the America that we're living in now, these parallel universes And it seems to affect everything. Well, we'll get into this with uh, Andrew Romano, because I think that is very much reflected in the the new Yahoo News YouGov poll we've we've done. Yeah, in fact, we've got Andrew with us as we speak. Andrew, what do you make of the uh, dichotomy between the numbers we're seeing being reported and these reassurances from the president and vice president? Yeah, it's interesting. It almost feels like history repeating itself. And I hesitate to say I'm surprised that they're making the same mistake again, but but they, they seem to be. During the first surge of coronavirus, which you know obviously hit hardest in New York and in the Northeast, we saw the same thing. We saw the president and Mike Pence say that cases were going to go away, that everything was fine. Then they didn't. And a lot of people got sick and a lot of people died, and it's really affected their credibility and political standing. They said there were plenty of tests. There weren't. 
So to hear them saying the same thing now on the second consecutive day where we've posted our largest national total of positive tests, more than 40,000, that's, that's more than we ever posted during that first surge, more than when cases were overwhelming New York City hospitals. And apparently as many as one in only one in 10 cases are detected. If you do the math, that means, you know, you may be getting 400,000 cases a day. Yeah, here's the thing, right? So, you know, we are testing more now. That is true. Trump has made that point again and again. And I was looking at the latest numbers. I think we tested more than 600,000 people yesterday. That's remarkable. That is that's a lot of progress. But the fact is that testing alone does not explain this rise in cases. The rise is happening faster than these states can test. There's clearly community spread. And what we've seen at every point of this pandemic is that what we know at any given moment, the tip of the iceberg that we can see is not the whole story. And we're usually a week or two or more behind the curve of the pandemic. And the fact is, if you've got all these people testing positive, there are a lot more people out there who have it, who could be spreading it. Even if they're young people, we're seeing more young people test positive. And that's another thing that Republicans are, are saying is a good sign because they, they tend not to go to the hospital as much. They tend not to die as much. That's why we haven't seen death rates pick up. But if all these people have it, they could be spreading it to, to older people. We just don't know. And it's, it just feels like deja vu all over again where we're, we're back in, in March. Yeah, you know, Andrew, it does seem to me that this is, you can't overstate what a disaster this is for the president's political prospects right now. Look, we have in today, Governor Abbott in Texas, having to reinstate restrictions that he had previously lifted. The economic impact of that, which is going to happen in state after state, Florida will have no choice, Arizona will have no choice to do the same, is going to be crippling to the economy. The president's poll numbers keep getting worse and worse. He's losing in every battleground state right now, according to the latest numbers. You know, Arizona, Texas, even he's losing in Texas. He's losing in Florida. He's losing in in North Carolina. And you put on top of that, we're getting numbers in some of these Senate races key to who's going to control the Senate next year in which Republicans are steadily losing ground. Uh, uh, Martha McSally in Arizona is nine points behind Kelly, the Democrat. Tillis is three points behind in North Carolina. I mean, this is looking right now like a potential electoral wipeout for Trump and the Republican Party. Yeah, it looks terrible right now for for Trump and the Republicans. It's hard to think of another situation where you had an incumbent president looking this week at this point in the election cycle and layer on top of that the fact that because the country's become so much more polarized, there isn't as much wiggle room. You know, you used to have, you know, elections where, you know, one party or the other would win 400 plus electoral votes in the high 40s in the state, you know, number of states like Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, that doesn't happen anymore. But to see numbers like this in the battleground states where Biden is up by 15, 10, 8 percentage points in states that Trump won last time around is not good news. That said, the election's not today. I always try not to make predictions about these things. Okay. Unlike you, Andrew, we like to go out on a limb. All right. And so like <laughs> just a week or so ago. say the coronavirus is not going anywhere. And in, in case anyone was confused about that, this resurgence is proving it. 
When we let up on distancing, when we let up on personal precautions, it comes back. It comes back in places where it, it didn't hit hard the first time around. And so it's going to be with us through this election. And unless Trump figures out a way to alter perceptions of his response among the public and close that kind of credibility gap where he's talking about everything being fine and everything's clearly not fine, it's going to be hard for him to revive it. One more beat on this. One more beat on this. We had Rick Wilson just a week or so ago, a inveterate, never Trumper, organizer of the Lincoln Project, uh, couldn't be more anti-Trump, Republican strategist from Florida who's turned like totally against him. And I asked him my sort of pet theory here. What is the chance? What is the chance that at some point as the president's numbers continue to go down, McConnell goes to to the White House, maybe with a few other senators and said, you know, Mr. President, we're really sorry. We'd really appreciate it if you would not run for reelection. We can't back you for the nomination because you're going to bring our entire party down. And even then, even then, Rick Wilson, who couldn't be more anti-Trump than anybody, said, well, I don't think we're there yet. He kind of danced around it. He did not see it as realistic possibility. Here's a clip we've got from James Carville last night on Brian Williams. Mark, can you play the clip for Andrew? James, it's good to see you. Give me some grizzled political wisdom. Do you believe a single poll out there? Yes, I think there is a better chance that Donald Trump does not run for re-election than he's re-elected. There's no chance he's going to be re-elected. Andrew, what do you think? Uh, I respectfully disagree uh, with Mr. Carville there, who has more experience running campaigns than I do. But, you know, look, I, I, I don't see any universe in which the Republican Party forces Donald Trump to step aside. I just can't see it. We just we have a structural polarization and a partisanship in our country right now that just is impossible to shake. And I think they got to stick with him through the election. I, I think. He, he has a chance to win re-election. Do I think it looks likelier than not right now? No, obviously. But again, you know, you got to be cautious extrapolating from things we're seeing at any given moment, you know, out four or five months. It's pretty hard, given the 2020 we've had so far, yeah. to say what's going to happen next. I mean, to your point about, you know, polarization, the, the fact is uh, Donald Trump is extremely popular with Republicans. Uh, he might not be doing well with independents. He's clearly not doing well with Democrats. But if he gets pushed out or decides to, th that will completely depress the Republican electorate. There's no universe in which the Republican Party does not completely implode if Donald Trump is pushed out by establishment figures. It just would validate everything that his base fears about the party, it would destroy, it would essentially destroy the party. I just don't think that well, they, the incentive structure is there for them to do that. Well, you listen, they, they can implode that way by establishment people forcing him out, or they can, or the Republican Party can implode with an electoral wipeout. Uh, I think I mean, a lot of Republicans would, at this point, you know, elected officials, I, I would guess, are ready to move on from Donald Trump. So they'd probably, I think, politically would rather have him lose at the ballot box than be seen as as forcing him out. They could still 
keep some hold on their their base. Yeah, you're probably right, but uh, you know, I think Mitch McConnell first and foremost cares about, you know, these Senate races and control of the Senate. He knows what a, a disaster it will be for everything he's worked for if we have a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate and House uh, starting in January. Well, uh, yeah. Well, whatever happens, it's interesting to me and notable that um, Mike Isakoff and James Carville are on the same pa- <laughs> are on the same page on s- something. Given yeah. given the maybe of- for the first time, it wasn't always that way. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's my question that you know maybe is as unrealistic a scenario as the one we just talked about, but given these huge surges in places like you know Florida and Texas. Florida being a state that was not completely out of reach uh, for the Democrats, but was a while ago was considered to be fairly firmly uh, in the in the Trump camp now looks like it will go to Biden unless things uh, you know change dramatically. What about a state like Texas? I mean, people have been talking for a while now about Texas trending purple and perhaps a state that the Democrats could win. Beto O'Rourke came very close to becoming a senator in the in the last cycle. Um, that didn't happen. Do you think there's any chance, any plausible chance that uh, the Democrats could um, could could steal Texas away, given the coronavirus catastrophe and the economic fallout from that potentially? Yeah. Look, I mean, what was it that Hillary Clinton came within nine points or something of winning? I think that's right. Yeah. It may may have been even less than that. I mean, I remember people were surprised. And look, as you said, people have been talking about this forever. If you registered all the young people and Latinos and they all turned out to vote in, in Texas, Democrats would win. The electorate is there. They just have to get them to the polls. You know, I think it's possible that coronavirus could influence this. You know, it depends on the national margin. Texas is not going to be the tipping point state. If, if Biden wins Texas, he's probably winning states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin first by a considerable margin. But it would be it would make history if he were to flip Texas. And I was looking at our the cross tabs of our polls. And there's something interesting about this. We don't break it out state by state. But we did kind of group together the 30 or so states where cases have been increasing over the last couple of weeks. And we've seen that ratings of how your state has handled coronavirus have been ticking downward in those states. So there was a a state government. How's your state handling it from 59 percent in mid-April to 51 percent in mid-May to 46 percent on the current survey? So they've been going down, especially in these states where cases are going up. And I think that that could definitely have an influence. Most of the states sort of that are central to this resurgence are states that are controlled by Republican governors. There could be some repercussions for their party at the polls in November because of that. Hey, Andrew, you got some uh, interesting new poll numbers on masks. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, I, I think masks is just this really interesting case study in how something that is completely nonpartisan, it's a uh, public health precaution, can be turned into a kind of partisan symbol and an example of the polarization of this country. So we are showing uh, in our latest Yahoo News YouGov poll that two-thirds of Americans overall now say that masks should be mandatory. We didn't quite test that exact phrasing before, but just last month, one month ago in late May, we asked whether the government should require social distancing measures such as wearing masks in stores. And 55% at that point said 
Yes. So it's gone up 10 points roughly over the last month alone as we've seen this rise in cases. And I think that's pretty striking. Now, the other striking thing is that how partisan this question has become. 86% of Democrats, 65% of independents back the idea. A majority of Republicans, 54%, oppose it. Among those who intend to vote for Trump in November, 63% say masks should not be mandatory. Um, and there are all kinds of studies at this point showing that masks are the simplest, easiest way to reduce coronavirus transmission. I, in fact, there was one that said in the states where, where that had mandatory masks or, orders, as many as something like 400,000 cases were prevented by those orders alone. And in this latest resurgence that we're seeing, we're seeing uh, cases rising in states that don't require residents to wear masks by 84% over the last two weeks. And in the states that do require masks, cases have fallen by 25%. Now, that's not necessarily all cause and effect, but it goes to show sort of some of the factors that are playing in here. And uh, you actually posed that question in the poll before Joe Biden actually came out publicly to say that if he were president, he would make the wearing of masks outdoors mandatory. It's interesting that that he sort of leaned in that far into the idea that people, that the government, the federal government, the president of the United States would tell you that you, that you have to do this. And it does, I think, speak to that incredible cultural divide in this country that's reflected in Republicans and, and, and Democrats today. And I, I imagine we're going to continue to see that throughout this election cycle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, you know, we're seeing all kinds of divides, partisan divides on coronavirus in the poll. I mean, Republicans are half as likely as Democrats to say they always wear masks when leaving home, six times as likely to say they never wear them. Just 41% of Republicans say they always practice social distancing in public compared with 63% of Democrats. The list goes on. And I think part of the question going forward is we see these cases rise and things start to get scarier in terms potentially of hospitalization in states like Arizona, Florida, and Texas, is whether there's a reconsideration of some of these positions based on you know, clear and present danger where you live. You're seeing some of it among the governors there. You know, uh, you're hearing Greg Abbott in Texas tell people to wear masks. You're seeing Ron DeSantis not be as quite as strident uh, uh, about some of this stuff. Um, and I'm curious to see whether that kind of seeps down into the public and people just kind of get over their objections to this and recognize that it might be the yeah. easiest way but they uh, are... to keep themselves safe. But I mean, the the, the governors are... They're not fully rolling rolling these things back. I mean, Abbott, for example, he's just put a pause on, you know, the opening up the economy in Texas. So, for example, you know, restaurants are open and I think they are allowed to be at 75 percent capacity in Texas. And they actually just reversed it back to 50 percent. And just okay. to interrupt one sec, what yeah. we've started to see is signs of reversing things. So they closed bars back down. I think that was just today. I'm curious to see as these cases explode and the political pressure from the public is put on these governors, yeah. whether they continue to make the argument that all this stuff needs to stay open. Right. So there may be a, a kind of a tipping point as things get really bad and hospitalizations go up, death rates start to go up again. And I saw, I mean, talk about radical behavior by a Florida governor. We saw today on Friday that they made a decision to ban alcohol in bars. <laughs> What's the point of a bar 
if you're banning alcohol. But I guess that's the way of keeping young people out of bars. I guess so. Yeah, I'm not going to the bar. <laughs> There's nothing to drink there, especially yeah. especially at a moment like this. We'll, we'll see what happens. One other political question for you. We actually had uh, primaries this this past week in Kentucky, uh, a contested Senate race and uh, a number of congressional races in New York. And here we are. It's we're taping this on Friday. Those elections were Tuesday. And we don't know who won many of these key contested races um, in Kentucky, the race between uh, Amy McGrath and Booker, which is very tight. Booker has a slight edge, but more than 20 percent of the votes have yet to be counted. And uh, similarly, in some of these uh, New York congressional races, we st- Carolyn Maloney, um, uh, Elliot Engel, we don't know whether they have won or not. And what does that tell us about what things are going to look like in November after Election Day? Well, it tells us that our job is going to suck that night because I have <laughs> been on the hook for writing election rap stories many times. And you want those results to come in there. We're not. I, I would be surprised if we knew. I mean, if it's a huge bl- blowout for Biden or I guess theoretically Trump, if it's a huge blowout for someone, maybe. But. You know, it's hard to imagine with the amount of vote by mail that we're going to have and absentee ballots that we're going to we're going to have a, a clear result that night. We, we asked about this, too, in the poll. And I just want to say that the American people favor uh, vote by mail. Um, a majority do. And they're not buying uh, Trump's claims that, you know, the election will be stolen. So I think there will be political pressure, especially as coronavirus, if, you know, if coronavirus is still on the upswing in November for people to be able to vote from the safety of their home. And if that happens, then we're not we're, we're going to be we're going to be up late that right. night and probably. I mean, there, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of a lot of states now that are going to allow ballots to be counted so long as they are postmarked Election Day. And that means that, uh, you know, it could take many, many days, maybe as much as a week or more to count up all the ballots. And uh, God knows what <laughs> this president will do in that in that time. Let's not hope that it's, if it's extremely close and that's the situation. Also, given how many problems there have been just in getting people ballots on time and uh, it, it, it could be a huge, a huge mess. And on top of that, you know, my other forecast, which I've uh, expressed before on this podcast, that Trump v. Biden is going to make Bush v. Gore look like a parlor game. There's going to be litigation left and right surrounding this election. I do want to correct myself before I said some of these uh, races, we don't, it's not clear who won, but uh, I'm looking at the latest numbers in the 16th New York Congressional Democratic Primary. Elliot Engel, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, is way behind his challenger, Jamal Bowman, who's got 61% to 34%. So I think it's fairly clear Engel is going down. And that's a big development. This Engel's been around for a long time. He's chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And um, it, that's that's one, one notch for the progressives. But Andrew, I want to uh, thank you for agreeing to at least one of my forecasts. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, my two forecasts kind of contradict each other because the first one was that Trump wouldn't even be running for re-election. The second one is that there'll be a legal battle by the Trump campaign. I, I've got a forecast uh, before okay. we go. I, uh, my, my prediction is that Jamal Bowman is not going to be 
trying to be first at the State of the Union and get, <laughs> so that he can yeah. shake the president's hand the way Elliot yeah. Engel. Uh, most uh, people, uh, the did, only uh, thing uh, they know about Elliot Engel <laughs> is for for a couple of decades, he would be there as early as he could so he could get a good spot so he could shake the president's hand as he came down the aisle. By the way, he he uh, stopped doing that because he didn't want to shake Trump's hand. Yeah, but, uh, a wise, anyway, a wise political choice, but not yeah. wise enough, apparently. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway. All right, Andrew, thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. We'll have you back. Thank you, guys. We now have with us Yahoo News medical contributor and former Obama administration official, Dr. Kavita Patel. Doctor, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. So quite a series of astounding numbers we're seeing on the rise of uh, COVID-19 infections here. Record numbers. We just got these figures out of Florida, nearly 9,000 new cases, a, a, a record. What is going on and what explains this spike? Yeah, and just to give some context for that kind of 8,000 to 9,000 new cases, I predict, honestly, while all the tests are being processed, about 10,000 new cases in a 24-hour period in Florida, just to give you some level setting, the most we had seen in New York was about 11 to 12,000 cases, new cases in one day. And that's with not that's not adjusting for the population density. So if we were to put in those adjustments, just the bottom line is that Florida is actually exceeding New York. So what's happening? A couple of things. Number one, we are no longer in a stay-at-home nationwide. So even when New York was going through those terrible numbers that you recall, we had had a kind of a stay-at-home, you know, national, we know from cell phone mobility, less people. So number one, people are moving around, reopening, just transit, and people are moving around. And number two, it's facilitating what we call community spread. And this is where I think a lot of people, including the White House task force, are trying to emphasize efforts. In the beginning, we saw a lot of cases of people, nursing homes, remember Seattle, Washington area, um, even in New York, stories coming out with nursing homes being kind of, quote, the hot spots for an outbreak. What's happened is that we've gotten much better at trying to help people in a more risky age group stay home, stay healthy, stay safe. And we have not done as much messaging to younger people to say, here's how you need to be part of controlling the spread. So you've now seen these images, beaches, parties, proms. You've got all sorts of people younger age, getting together and creating what we call super spreader events, where you have 18 people out of 50 getting infected, not sick enough always to go to the hospital. And we're testing now, just to kind of close this, the third aspect of this, it's not what Trump is saying, where we're, quote, testing more and we're therefore picking up more cases. It's that we're actually finally testing and understanding about the cases we weren't picking up before. Three months ago, we were probably picking up one in 100 infections. Today, we're probably picking up one in 10 infections. Well, Kavita, doesn't that suggest to you that then, if that's the case, that the number of cases is actually much, much higher than what we're seeing? I mean... 
that's exactly it. Dan, that, you, you said it best. So I'm making it too clunky and complicated. The truth is that we thought maybe one in a hundred, we thought maybe 1%, 2% of the country overall was infected. And now what we're seeing with this community spread and this last, you know, several weeks of an uptick dominated by the, you know, Midwest and Southeast, South Texas, where I'm from, um, those numbers have contributed to exactly what you said, that we now have more cases from a spread, which means more virus present. The fact that we don't have as many people dying from it, which was a point that's been made, that, honest to God, that's because we're smarter at taking care of patients in the hospital. But just a statistic, the average length of stay for a 30-year-old with COVID in the hospital is two weeks. This isn't, this. it's not like they're just like healthy and out the door. And it, there's a 5% mortality rate if you're 35 years old in Florida and get hospitalized. So think about that. I mean, that, we're not, we're definitely in a very scary area. A couple of quick follow-up questions because, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did a story about how the number of cases was going up fairly dramatically, particularly in these southern and, and southwestern states. But the number of deaths were not going up in a commensurate fashion. And the explanation at the time was that's because the elderly population is staying inside more, taking more precautions. And this is mostly because there are a lot of younger, more reckless people going out. So does that still hold true today? And the second question I wanted to ask you is, We've always heard that the real indicator was hospitalizations. That is what we should be looking at. So what's going on with hospitalizations? So answer both of those if you could. Yes, it is true that, so let's talk about the death rate. If you are older, you are still more likely to die, but we just have fewer of those older populations accounting for the new cases. So Again, just to kind of put it another way, it's exactly what you said, Dan. It's the fact that we don't have people who are older and know that they're at risk are heeding the message. They're either staying home or using a mask or distancing and trying to be aggressive about keeping themselves safe. So, yes, that is true. But we all are we are also seeing just across the board, we're doing a better job at managing people in the hospital so that they don't die. And you've heard about a couple of drugs. Are those, you know, the panacea and going to the cure? No, but they're helping us. Listen, three months ago when you and I, when the three of us talked on a podcast, we didn't have anything. So we have now a couple of things we can use. So that's, that's part of it. And then just to unpack kind of on your latter point, like what are we seeing? So here's, here's what we know. We know that it's incredibly local and let's take Houston, Texas, for example, by the way, not all states, just a point I want to make that not all city states and counties kind of have even reporting mechanisms. So we're relying a lot on like states. I'll give you a, the exemplar state, the state that should get like the gold crown is in Indiana. They actually have an incredible statewide hospitalization reporting that's incredibly detailed for listeners who are super geeky and want to walk out. But in the state of Texas, the best thing we have is Texas Medical Center, one of the largest medical centers, and they have incredibly rich hospitalization related to COVID details. And they have seen an increase in hospitalizations and kind of a static in ICU-related hospitalizations, but they've also seen an increase in recoveries. So what does that mean? That means we have more people going into the hospital because we have more people getting coronavirus in places like Houston, Texas. But they are when they come into the hospital in Texas, we're keeping them healthy enough where they can get discharged and they don't die. And we also know that we're learning enough to prevent 
all, it used to be that almost everybody from the hospital went into the ICU. Now we're doing a better job at keeping them out of the ICU. So I would say on top of what we, what you know is that we should look at hospitalizations, ER visits, and ICU stays, because it's all those three things. And then the real statistic is how many of these people leave the hospital and how long does it take for them to get out the door? Mm-hmm. And I think as Americans, if listeners, and I'm not trying to scare people, I can talk about some positives. I hope I did with telling people we know how to keep you alive. But another positive, I hope, is that we're starting to understand more about long-term effects of this virus. So, you know, you can get discharged three months ago and what does this mean and how do we help you? And the reason people have to wear masks and, and do what they can to be safe is because we're learning more and more every day. And we just need to buy time, buy time to get a vaccine, buy time to keep you healthy. That's really the story. So, Kavita, there there are a number of things about these numbers that baffle me, and I'm hoping you can sort of explain. Like, we kind of get, yes, that states like Arizona and Texas and Florida that eased up early, they're getting whacked really hard. But, you know, there are some other states that eased up early, like Georgia, that you know, there, there's been an increase. I'm looking at 1,900 new cases today being reported, but nothing like what we're seeing in some of the in, in the neighboring state of Florida. So explain that to me. Yeah, no. Well, I actually I, it's funny you mentioned Georgia. I talked to a friend of mine who works in at, at Grady Hospital, the largest you know public hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. And she said she validated exactly what you said. We're seeing increases but it doesn't seem like it's what's happening in Florida. She's like, it's bad, but not so bad. And then I asked her the same question from a public health kind of quote policy. We just think this represents kind of this local variation that one, there is local variation to this disease. Does this mean that we've got a bunch of different genetic strains? No, but it could mean that there is an aspect to the virus in a community like parts of Florida where it's just a lower type of virus load that infected people are getting, no matter what age you are. That's one factor. The second is that I predict in Atlanta, we're actually just not testing people and we're just not doing enough to pick up what's real, to be honest. And then the third has to do with the fact that what you're seeing out of those numbers in especially, I keep talking about Atlanta, let's just talk about Georgia more broadly. We still have a a kind of a rural divide, a rural and urban divide, and that's playing out in all of these states. And we think that there's an incredible lag in the positives. So again, talking to my friend who's on the ground, frontline hospital-based physician, she said that they're all bracing for their peak to play out several weeks later than what Florida is projecting. And and she thinks that that has to do with just the fact that they're going to pick up a tidal wave tailwind from Florida as people are kind of traveling and moving out from Florida back up the East Coast. One other follow-up on another aspect of this that baffles me. It's now been more than a few weeks since the Black Lives Matter protests, which alarmed a lot of public health officials. It, you know, we saw, we all saw in cities across the country, including the Northeast states, you know, people packed together protesting what happened to George Floyd and uh, police abuses. But I'm not seeing any correlation in these numbers with where the protests were taking place. Explain that. I will put, so I'm going to put, it's, it, what's great about these things is that there's actually some people who have studied this. So there's been a couple of policy papers looking at mobility data and also looking at the positives coming out from 
urban, large urban centers, Washington, D.C., places that, Minneapolis, places that had these protests. And right now there's data to show that, and nothing's perfect, Mike, so let me just be clear, but there's data to show that in those communities where you had the highest density of protests, you also had some of the highest rates of people who from their GPS mobility data on cell phones stayed at home. So if you weren't at the protests, there was an incredible correlation that the rest of the population was actually at home. So, could, you know, there's some theories, like could that cancel things out, et cetera. Honestly, I, I would just say to you that we saw a number of, for the majority of these protests, one of which I was a part of, you actually saw people wearing masks and doing physical distancing. On the news, we saw a lot of what kind of went south, like in Atlanta, for example, but that was not the majority of the experience. But it is interesting that there's kind of this notion that there was this canceling effect and that we just did not see this hot spot emerge from some of these protester areas. It remains to be seen if that's really the truth. The contact tracing, I guess my final point, the truth is that most of these communities, including where I'm living in, Mar in the Maryland area, we just do not have enough contact tracing to kind of get to the answers you're saying. The only place that's done it that has a very funny way of doing it that no one accuses me of only talking about liberal states. Tulsa, Oklahoma has done one of the best jobs. They actually have something called the Serious Seven. They've used contact tracing to identify the top seven environments that people can get infected, bars, religious spaces, household gatherings. And interestingly enough, that's probably what's really responsible for a lot of this community spread. Kavita, I want to ask you about masks, because a, a full-on culture war has broken out over masks. You have the president of the United States who still doesn't wear a mask in public. Someone pointed out on Twitter today that if he tweeted that Americans ought to be wearing masks, that could save many, many lives. There was a oversight hearing in Congress today where a Republican congressman from Tennessee named Mark Green went on a tirade about people wearing masks, was furious that he saw this morning, as we record this podcast on Friday, a runner who was wearing a mask, even though there were not a lot of people around him. Meanwhile, you have Vice President Biden, who said that if he were president, he would mandate that all Americans wear masks outside. There was a University of Washington study that just came out that said that uh, if 95% of Americans wore masks, then between now and October 1st, 30 some odd thousand fewer people would die. So give us your best medical opinion. Are masks saving lives? And what have we learned about how masks actually do save lives if they do? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say it this way. So top line, yes, masks can save lives. The reasons why are not totally straightforward. It's not just because me wearing a mask over my nose and mouth, you know, prevent everybody from getting any sort of infection, but it also has to do, Dan and Mike, with what wearing a mask usually triggers for most people. So it's wearing the mask, which means you won't touch your face because what are you going to touch and fiddle with your nose and mouth? And then number three, it does actually, we've now su seen studies that show that people who wear masks tend to wash their hands more. So we know it also goes along with a number of other behaviors that are going to help decrease the rate of spread. Here's what we don't know. We now are trying to understand if we always knew that wearing a mask prevents you from infecting other people. We do not know, but because of that data you cited, and there's been some other studies to show 
that in countries like South Korea, Taiwan, where they have kind of a very cultural acceptance of wearing masks, that in those countries, we think that it could protect you from other people. And so that's why you're hearing a lot of statistics. And I've even been saying, if we can just get like a third or half the people kind of in a you know in a community, neighborhood, whatever, to wear masks, that alone will probably decrease. It seems like it's it's a kind of a social socialization effect, right? That if people stop wearing, if you see people around you who stop wearing masks, then I'm going to stop wearing a mask. Then that is that itself is contagious, and then we're all more exposed. Yeah, and I you know I'm going to, I because I told you I I went to school in Texas and and I have a lot of friends there. They've told me some very disturbing things about doctors who were telling other doctors, including my friends, telling hearing this. The doctors are saying, you know, what's the big deal? It's not as bad. You know, this it's like the flu. It's not so bad. And they're not even wanting to wear masks. And I think the reason I point that out is because there's the data and there's the science, but clearly something is being overlaid on top of this. And it's that political. I truly do not understand other than Donald Trump and the vice president refusing to wear them and sending a signal that somehow you're weak if you wear one. I really don't understand what the So I should point out two things. First of all, Mark Green, this congressman from t- Tennessee, is a physician. Yeah, um, I know. And secondly, our regular skullduggery guest, uh, Jamie Raskin, who represents Montgomery County, I think parts of PG County as well, he made that exact point to Congressman Green. He said, what? You know, you're not macho if you don't, if, if you wear a mask, so... <laughs> And I will say that um, the freedom today, and I, I did not see that hearing. Now you're giving me one more thing I need to go back and watch. I thought the latest, the, it, I don't want to call it the White House, it's the COVID task force hearing. And and they asked Vice President Mike Pence, like, are you, you now see, you, you are recommending, you know, to have people wear masks or facial coverings, but it's not what you yourself do. And so then they, you know, they basically, he basically said, look, it's a freedom issue. I'm not going to tell you what to say. I can't tell you what to wear. And I'm just going to make one kind of analogy to this. Like we would never conceive of, let me use the public health analogy. If somebody were bleeding, we would fully expect, given what we know about blood exposure and viruses, we fully expect for people to bandage themselves, for us to wear gloves. This is not very different. And I don't see it as a violation of civil liberty to ask somebody if somebody is in an environment where someone's bleeding to wear gloves or take care of themselves from getting infected. That's what a mask is. Like, you can decide not to use one, but there is really no wrap. Yeah, I mean, you're for it other than you don't want to protect yourself. I mean, your point, Kavita, about uh, how our understanding of masks uh, and their potential um, utility is evolving, because I do remember not too long ago when we were being told, you know, you wear them to protect others from you. They're not going to protect you. That seems that understanding seems to be changing. But there's so many aspects of this. I mean, I, I remember when we were being told early on that once the weather gets warmer, the virus is going to tamp down. And now we're in the summer and it's in the warmest states in the country in the Sun Belt where we're seeing the biggest spikes. 
Yeah, that's right. And by uh, just full upfront disclosure, I'm one of those people that in the beginning said, remember, it only protects others from from you. And then number two, by the way, that is what if, if you look at the studies of what the masks actually do, it does kind of a, it, originally that we thought it doesn't do much of a good job at preventing particles from coming into the mask. It prevented particles from going out of the mask. That's why you have the N95. It prevents 95% of the particles coming out of my mask. But now we know it might be a little more than that. But to your point about the humidity, I, I was not one of those people just because while this was unfolding in New York and in the West Coast and Northwest, we were watching other humid Brazil and Iran and other Saudi Arabia, and they were seeing incredible spikes. So what we do think is that this coronavirus acts like other coronaviruses, that humidity plays some role. Again, maybe, Mike, you know, to your point about what's going on with Atlanta, not as bad, what's happening. Is there some role in some way that local weather is playing some factor? Maybe, but nobody, including myself, thought that this would just kind of, quote, go away with the warmer weather. My problem is that we're not even out of our, if you look at those states that we just talked about, they're still in their first wave. And like, what are we going to do if we have this? Here's why I make a plea to listeners. If we have this ping pong effect, so you see the Rust Belt, you see the South, those people then travel and migrate. And then places like Maryland, where I am, who have been doing better, get it back again. All we're going to do, back and forth, back and forth. And then when it only ends when we get a vaccine. And that's what we're all scared of. Yeah, I'm wondering about, you know, New York, which, uh, ha, you know, has gone from being the kind of global epicenter of this uh, disease to being in better shape than just about any other place in the country, at least. And then I saw a story in The New York Times today that uh, that it's beginning to come back a bit in Germany, which had done better than almost any other European country. So what are the risks of covid spiking up again in a place like New York, what do policymakers have to be doing right now to make sure that that doesn't happen, either in terms of in this first wave or then if a second wave um, starts up? But I'll say I'm glad you I get to put my policy hat on, which is nice. And I would say that if I were in the if I were in the White House and part of the staff on the White House or the COVID task force, um, I would do several things. Number one, I would absolutely absolutely look into how I can get some, you know, we did not have the rapid testing strategic national stockpile for these drugs. We didn't have any of those things in place. I would argue we still don't have those things in place. I would be thinking right now about how the states of New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and Maryland and Virginia and the District of Columbia, how I can make sure that I can rapidly get them enough dexamethasone, the steroid that we've heard that could work, and remdesivir, that other medication we've heard. The two things we know, number one. Number two, people have been talking about deploying the National Guard. No. Okay, what we need to do is train. We need to take over training a contact tracing workforce, and we need to deploy Amazon drones, and we need to do anything possible to trace those people. And we are not seeing that strength of force. And then three, supply chain. You're, you're now hearing these reports out of Arizona and Florida about the delays in testing, right? We come back to testing. We have to do what Fauci's alluded to. to we're calling it pooled testing. It's kind of clunky and complicated. I can explain it if it's of interest. But we need to figure out how to test tens of thousands of people in a day. And that is a way of being much more efficient. 
with your testing. This is a policy. And, and, and this is where, you know, people, Democrats, Republicans, all we do in, in Washington is argue about the how big government needs to be. I tell you what, when you're going into a catering, you know, recession, almost depression economically, and the only thing that can get you out of that is having the public feel safe and healthy, you need the strongest force of government you could possibly see. So I would argue, if even if I were a libertarian, this is the time to show that kind of strength of force, and that's what I would do as a policy. Wait, did you say you were from Texas, Kavita? You don't, <laughs> you don't sound like a Texan. I know. What he, I say I, I haven't. I done my y'all. I'm, I'm, I'm born and bred. You must be from one of those big cities in Texas, right? I'm not. I'm from, I'm from south of San Antonio, from a very wow. small community. I know it's a very strange phenomenon. That, uh, but I, I, I will say that that's. That's why I understand that there's this inherent distrust of having, quote unquote, big government. It's how people in Texas felt. We're still one of the states that wants to secede from the union, right? <laughs> I think uh, I think my dog Ringo is telling us that the that the po- that the podcast is over. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got I've got one one last question um, for uh, Kavita. I'm going to ask you to put on your forecasting cap right now. Looking at the numbers that we're seeing right now, I'm going to ask you three questions that I think a lot of our listeners sort of very practically minded want the answers to will schools reopen in the fall number one will there be a football season in the fall and number three will there be in-person voting in november (laughs) okay i guess this is like when john dingle when we would testify and john dingle would say i need you to answer all these questions yes or no yeah (laughs) To be brief, so Ringo doesn't get me. Number one, <laughs> schools. Yes, they will open in the fall, but incredibly modified. Not what you would predict. Not a normal school season. No. Number two, will we have NFL football? I believe we. Sh- yes, we will. I just don't know what sequence. And I got to tell you, I wouldn't be putting any of these games in Florida right now. But I would. I would strongly encourage that, for the sake of American sanity, that we will need a football season. But it won't look like a regular season. <laughs> Spoken like a, a true Texan, there. But yes, go ahead. <laughs> right. Okay. I think we will have in-person voting, but this is where I I'm very concerned about just the. Uh, you saw what happened in Kentucky uh, over this past week. I would be incredibly concerned about access to voting in person in a safe manner that does not deny people the ability and freedom to vote. So I'll say that. All right. Well said. And we will come back to you to see how your forecasts hold up uh, in a few months. But uh, thank you again for your insights. Always enormously helpful. Thanks to Yahoo News medical contributor and former Obama administration official Kavita Patel and Yahoo News national correspondent Andrew Romano for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.